Chapter Four, Part One of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Four from which it will appear that if union be strength and family affection be pleasant to contemplate the chuzzlewits were the strongest and most agreeable family in the world part one that worthy man mr pecksniff having taken leave of his cousin in the solemn terms recited in the last chapter withdrew to his own home and remained there three whole days, not so much as going out for a walk beyond the boundaries of his own garden, lest he should be hastily summoned to the bedside of his penitent and remorseful relative, whom, in his ample benevolence, he had made up his mind to forgive unconditionally, and to love on any terms. But such was the obstinacy, and such the bitter nature of that stern old man, that no repentant summons came, and the fourth day found Mr. Pecksniff apparently much farther from his Christian object than the first. During the whole of this interval he haunted the dragon at all times and seasons in the day and night, and, returning good for evil, evinced the deepest solicitude in the progress of the obdurate invalid, insomuch that Mrs. Lupin was fairly melted by his disinterested anxiety, for he often particularly required her to take notice that he would do the same by any stranger or pauper in the like condition, and shed many tears of admiration and delight. Meantime old Martin Chuzzlewit remained shut up in his own chamber, and saw no person but his young companion, saving the hostess of the Blue Dragon, who was at certain times admitted to his presence. So surely as she came into the room, however, Martin feigned to fall asleep. It was only when he and the young lady were alone that he would utter a word, even in answer to the simplest inquiry, though Mr. Pecksniff could make out, by hard listening at the door, that they two being left together he was talkative enough. It happened on the fourth evening that Mr. Pecksniff, walking as usual into the bar of the dragon, and finding no Mrs. Lupin there, went straight upstairs, purposing, in the fervour of his affectionate zeal, to apply his ear once more to the keyhole, and quiet his mind by assuring himself that the hard-hearted patient was going on well. It happened that Mr. Pecksniff, coming softly upon the dark passage into which a spiral ray of light usually darted through the same keyhole, was astonished to find no such ray visible. And it happened that Mr. Pecksniff, when he had felt his way to the chamber door, stooping hurriedly down to ascertain, by personal inspection, whether the jealousy of the old man had caused this keyhole to be stopped on the inside, brought his head into such violent contact with another head that he could not help uttering in an audible voice the monosyllable, Oh! which was, as it were, sharply unscrewed and jerked out of him by very anguish. It happened then, and lastly, that Mr. Pecksniff found himself immediately collared by something which smelt like several damp umbrellas, a barrel of beer, a cask of warm brandy and water, and a small parlour full of stale tobacco smoke mixed, and was straightway led downstairs into the bar from which he had lately come, where he found himself standing opposite to, and in the grasp of a perfectly strange gentleman of still stranger appearance, who, with his disengaged hand, rubbed his own head very hard, and looked at him, Pecksniff, with an evil countenance. The gentleman was of that order of appearance which is currently termed shabby-genteel, 
though in respect of his dress he can hardly be said to have been in any extremities, as his fingers were a long way out of his gloves, and the soles of his feet were at an inconvenient distance from the upper leather of his boots. His nether garments were of a bluish-gray, violent in its colours once, but sobered now by age and dinginess, and were so stretched and strained in a tough conflict between his braces and his straps, that they appeared every moment in danger of flying asunder at the knees. His coat, in colour blue, and of a military cut, was buttoned and frogged up to his chin. His cravat was, in hue and pattern, like one of those mantles which hairdressers are accustomed to wrap about their clients during the progress of the professional mysteries. His hat had arrived at such a pass that it would have been hard to determine whether it was originally white or black, but he wore a moustache, a shaggy moustache, too, nothing in the meek and merciful way, but quite in the fierce and scornful style, the regular satanic sort of thing, and he wore, besides, a vast quantity of unbrushed hair. He was very dirty and very jaunty, very bold and very mean, very swaggering and very slinking, very much like a man who might have been something better, and unspeakably like a man who deserved to be something worse. "'You were eavesdropping at that door, you vagabond,' said this gentleman." Mr. Pecksniff cast him off, as St. George might have repudiated the dragon in that animal's last moments, and said, "'Where is Mrs. Lupin, I wonder? Can the good woman possibly be aware that there is a person here who—' "'Stay,' said the gentleman. "'Wait a bit. She does know. What then?' "'What then, sir?' cried Mr. Pecksniff. "'What then? Do you know, sir, that I am the friend and relative of that sick gentleman, that I am his protector, his guardian, his—' "'Not his niece's husband,' interposed the stranger. "'I'll be sworn, for he was there before you.' "'What do you mean?' said Mr. Pecksniff, with indignant surprise. "'What do you tell me, sir?' "'Wait a bit,' cried the other. "'Perhaps you are a cousin. "'The cousin who lives in this place?' "'I am the cousin who lives in this place,' replied the man of worth. "'Your name is Pecksniff?' said the gentleman. "'It is.' "'I am proud to know you, and I ask your pardon,' said the gentleman, touching his hat, and subsequently diving behind his cravat for a shirt-collar, which, however, he did not succeed in bringing to the surface. "'You behold in me, sir, one who has also an interest in that gentleman upstairs. Wait a bit.' As he said this, he touched the tip of his high nose by way of intimation that he would let Mr. Pecksniff into a secret presently, and, pulling off his hat, began to search inside the crown among a mass of crumpled documents and small pieces of what may be called the bark of broken cigars, whence he presently selected the cover of an old letter, begrimed with dirt and redolent of tobacco. "'Read that,' he cried, giving it to Mr. Pecksniff. "'This is addressed to Chevy Slime, Esquire,' said that gentleman. "'You know Chevy Slime, Esquire, I believe,' returned the stranger." Mr. Pecksniff shrugged his shoulders as though he would say, I know there is such a person, and I am sorry for it. Very good, remarked the gentleman. That is my interest in business here. With that he made another dive for his shirt-collar and brought up a string. Now this is very distressing, my friend, said Mr. Pecksniff, shaking his head and smiling composedly. It is very distressing to me to be compelled to say that you are not the person you claim to be. "'I know, Mr. Slime, my friend, this will not do. "'Honesty is the best policy. "'You had better not. "'You had indeed.' "'Stop!' cried the gentleman, stretching forth his right arm, "'which was so tightly wedged into his threadbare sleeve "'that it looked like a cloth sausage. "'Wait a bit.' 
He paused to establish himself immediately in front of the fire with his back towards it. Then, gathering the skirts of his coat under his left arm, and smoothing his moustache with his right thumb and forefinger, he resumed. "'I understand your mistake, and I am not offended. Why? Because it's complimentary. You suppose I would set myself up for Chevy Slime, sir, if there is a man on earth whom a gentleman would feel proud and honoured to be mistaken for, that man is my friend Slime, for he is, without an exception, the highest-minded, the most independent-spirited, most original, spiritual, classical, talented, the most thoroughly Shakespearean, if not Miltonic, and at the same time the most disgustingly unappreciated dog I know. But, sir, I have not the vanity to attempt to pass for Slime— any other man in the wide world I am equal to, but Slime is, I frankly confess, a great many cuts above me. Therefore you are wrong. I judged from this, said Mr. Pecksniff, holding out the cover of the letter. No doubt you did, returned the gentleman, but, Mr. Pecksniff, the whole thing resolves itself into an instance of the peculiarities of genius. Every man of true genius has his peculiarities, sir. The peculiarity of my friend Slime is that he is always waiting round the corner. He is perpetually round the corner, sir. He is round the corner at this instant. Now, said the gentleman, shaking his forefinger before his nose, and planting his legs wider apart as he looked attentively in Mr. Pecksniff's face, that is a remarkably curious and interesting trait in Mr. Slime's character. And whenever Slime's life comes to be written, that trait must be thoroughly worked out by his biographer, or society will not be satisfied. Observe me, society will not be satisfied. Mr. Pecksniff coughed. Slime's biographer, sir, whoever he may be, resumed the gentleman, must apply to me, or if I am gone, to that what's-his-name from which no thingamabob comes back. He must apply to my executors for leave to search among my papers. I have taken a few notes in my poor way of some of that man's proceedings, my adopted brother, sir, which would amaze you. He made use of an expression, sir, only on the 15th of last month, when he couldn't meet a little bill, and the other party wouldn't renew, which would have done honour to Napoleon Bonaparte in addressing the French army. "'And pray,' asked Mr. Pecksniff, obviously not quite at his ease, "'what may be Mr. Slime's business here, if I may be permitted to inquire, "'who am compelled by a regard for my own character "'to disavow all interest in his proceedings?' "'In the first place,' returned the gentleman, "'you will permit me to say that I object to that remark, "'and that I strongly and indignantly protest against it "'on behalf of my friend Slime. "'In the next place you will give me leave to introduce myself.' "'My name, sir, is Tigg. "'The name of Montague Tigg will perhaps be familiar to you "'in connection with the most remarkable events of the Peninsular War.' "'Mr. Pecksniff gently shook his head. "'No matter,' said the gentleman. "'That man was my father, and I bear his name. "'I am consequently proud. "'Proud as Lucifer. "'Excuse me one moment. "'I desire my friend Slime to be present at the remainder of this conference.' With this announcement he hurried away to the outer door of the Blue Dragon, and almost immediately returned with a companion shorter than himself, who was wrapped in an old blue camlet cloak with a lining of faded scarlet. His sharp features being much pinched and nipped by long waiting in the cold, and his straggling red whiskers and frowsy hair being more than usually dishevelled from the same cause, he certainly looked rather unwholesome and uncomfortable than Shakespearean or Miltonic. "'Now,' said Mr. Tigg, 
clapping one hand on the shoulder of his prepossessing friend, and calling Mr. Pecksniff's attention to him with the other. "'You two are related, and relations never did agree, and never will, which is a wise dispensation, and an inevitable thing, or there would be none but family parties, and everybody in the world would bore everybody else to death. If you were on good terms, I should consider you a most confoundedly unnatural pair.' but standing towards each other as you do, I look upon you as a couple of devilish, deep-thoughted fellows who may be reasoned with to any extent. Here Mr. Chevy Slime, whose great abilities seemed, one and all, to point towards the sneaking quarter of the moral compass, nudged his friend stealthily with his elbow and whispered in his ear. "'Chiv,' said Mr. Tigg aloud, in the high tone of one who was not to be tampered with, "'I shall come to that presently.' I act upon my own responsibility or not at all. To the extent of such a trifling loan as a crown piece to a man of your talents, I look upon Mr. Pecksniff as certain. And seeing at this juncture that the expression of Mr. Pecksniff's face by no means betokened that he shared this certainty, Mr. Tigg laid his finger on his nose again for that gentleman's private and especial behoof, calling upon him thereby to take notice that the requisition of small loans was another instance of the peculiarities of genius as developed in his friend Slime, that he, Tigg, winked at the same because of the strong metaphysical interest which these weaknesses possessed, and that in reference to his own personal advocacy of such small advances he merely consulted the humour of his friend without the least regard to his own advantage or necessities. "'Oh, Chiv, Chiv,' added Mr. Tigg, surveying his adopted brother with an air of profound contemplation, after dismissing this piece of pantomime, "'you are upon my life a strange instance of the little frailties that beset a mighty mind. If there had never been a telescope in the world, I should have been quite certain from my observation of you, Chiv, that there were spots on the sun. I wish I may die if this isn't the queerest state of existence that we find ourselves forced into, without knowing why or wherefore, Mr. Pecksniff.' "'Well, never mind. Moralize as we will, the world goes on. "'As Hamlet says, Hercules may lay about him with his club in every possible direction, "'but he can't prevent the cats from making a most intolerable row on the roofs of the houses, "'or the dogs from being shot in the hot weather if they run about the streets unmuzzled. "'Life's a riddle, a most infernally hard riddle to guess, Mr. Pecksniff.' My own opinions, like that celebrated conundrum, wise man in jail like a man out of jail, there's no answer to it. Upon my soul and body it's the queerest sort of thing altogether, but there's no use in talking about it. <laughs> With which consolatory deduction from the gloomy premises recited, Mr. Tigg roused himself by a great effort and proceeded in his former strain. Now I'll tell you what it is. I'm a most confoundedly soft-hearted kind of fellow in my way, and I cannot stand by and see you two blades cutting each other's throats when there's nothing to be got by it. Mr. Pecksniff, you're the cousin of the testator upstairs, and we're the nephew. I say we, meaning Chiv. Perhaps in all essential points you are more nearly related to him than we are. Very good. If so, so be it. But you can't get at him. Neither can we. I give you my brightest word of honour, sir, that I've been looking through that keyhole with short intervals of rest ever since nine o'clock this morning, in expectation of receiving an answer to one of the most moderate and gentlemanly applications for a little temporary assistance, only fifteen pounds in my security, that the mind of man can conceive. In the meantime, sir, he is perpetually closeted with, and pouring his whole confidence into the bosom of a stranger.' 
Now I say decisively with regard to this state of circumstances that it won't do, that it won't act, that it can't be, and that it must not be suffered to continue. Every man, said Mr. Pecksniff, has a right, an undoubted right, which I for one would not call in question for any earthly consideration, oh no, to regulate his own proceedings by his own likings and dislikings, supposing they are not immoral and not irreligious. I may feel in my own breast that Mr. Chuzzlewit does not regard me, for instance, say me, with exactly that amount of Christian love which should subsist between us. I may feel grieved and hurt at the circumstance. Still, I may not rush to the conclusion that Mr. Chuzzlewit is wholly without a justification in all his coldnesses. Heaven forbid! Besides, how, Mr. Tigg, continued Pecksniff even more gravely and impressively than he had spoken yet, how could Mr. Chuzzlewit be prevented from having these peculiar and most extraordinary confidences of which you speak, the existence of which I must admit, and which I cannot but deplore, for his sake? "'Consider, my good sir,' and here Mr. Pecksniff eyed him wistfully, "'how very much at random you are talking.' "'Why, as to that,' rejoined Tigg, "'it certainly is a difficult question.' "'Undoubtedly it is a difficult question,' Mr. Pecksniff answered. As he spoke he drew himself aloft, and seemed to grow more mindful suddenly of the moral gulf between himself and the creature he addressed. "'Undoubtedly it is a very difficult question.' "'and I am far from feeling sure that it is a question any one is authorized to discuss. "'Good evening to you.' "'You don't know that the spottletoes are here, I suppose,' said Mr. Tigg. "'What do you mean, sir, what spottletoes?' asked Pecksniff, stopping abruptly on his way to the door. "'Mr. and Mrs. Spottletoe,' said Chevy Slime Esquire, speaking aloud for the first time, and speaking very sulkily, shambling with his legs the while.' "'Spottletoe married my father's brother's child, didn't he? "'And Mrs. Spottletoe is Chuzzlewit's own niece, isn't she? "'She was his favourite once. "'You may well ask what Spottletoe's.' "'Now upon my sacred word,' cried Mr. Pecksniff, looking upwards, "'this is dreadful. "'The rapacity of these people is absolutely frightful.' "'It's not only the Spottletoe's either, Tig,' said Slime, "'looking at that gentleman and speaking at Mr. Pecksniff.' "'Anthony Chuzzlewit and his son have got wind of it "'and have come down this afternoon. "'I saw him not five minutes ago "'when I was waiting round the corner.' "'Oh, mammon, mammon!' "'cried Mr. Pecksniff, smiting his forehead. "'So there,' said Slime, regardless of the interruption, "'are his brother and another nephew for you already.' "'This is the whole thing, sir,' said Mr. Tigg. "'This is the point and purpose at which I was gradually arriving "'when my friend Slime here, with six words, hit it full. "'Mr. Pecksniff, now that your cousin and Chiv's uncle has turned up, "'some steps must be taken to prevent his disappearing again, "'and, if possible, to counteract the influence which is exercised over him now "'by this designing favourite. "'Everybody who is interested feels it, sir. "'The whole family is pouring down to this place.' The time has come when individual jealousies and interests must be forgotten for a time, sir, and union must be made against the common enemy. When the common enemy is routed, you will all set up for yourselves again. Every lady and gentleman who has a part in the game will go on in their own account and bowl away to the best of their ability at the testator's wicket, and nobody will be in a worse position than before. Think of it. "'Don't commit yourself now. "'You'll find us at the half-moon and seven stars in this village at any time "'and open to any reasonable proposition.' <clears throat> 
Chiv, my dear fellow, go out and see what sort of a night it is. Mr. Slime lost no time in disappearing, and it is to be presumed in going round the corner. Mr. Tigg, planting his legs as wide apart as he could be reasonably expected by the most sanguine man to keep them, shook his head at Mr. Pecksniff and smiled. "'We must not be too hard,' he said, upon the little eccentricities of our friend Slime. "'You saw him whisper me.' Mr. Pecksniff had seen him. "'You heard my answer, I think.' Mr. Pecksniff had heard it. Five shillings, eh?' said Mr. Tigg thoughtfully. "'Ah, what an extraordinary fellow! Very moderate, too.' Mr. Pecksniff made no answer. Five shillings,' pursued Mr. Tigg, musing, "'and to be punctually repaid next week. "'That's the best of it. You heard that.' Mr. Pecksniff had not heard that. "'No, you surprise me,' cried Tigg. "'That's the cream of the thing, sir. "'I never knew that man fail to redeem a promise in my life. "'You're not in want of change, are you?' "'No,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'Thank you, not at all.' "'Just so,' returned Mr. Tigg. "'If you had been, I'd have got it for you.' With that he began to whistle, but a dozen seconds had not elapsed when he stopped short, and looking earnestly at Mr. Pecksniff, said, "'Perhaps you'd rather not lend Slime five shillings.' "'I would much rather not,' Mr. Pecksniff rejoined. "'Egad!' cried Tigg, gravely nodding his head, as if some ground of objection occurred to him at that moment for the first time. "'It's very possible you may be right.' "'Would you entertain the same sort of objection to lending me five shillings now?' "'Yes, I couldn't do it indeed,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'Not even half a crown, perhaps?' urged Mr. Tigg. "'Not even half a crown. "'Why, then, we come,' said Mr. Tigg, "'to the ridiculously small amount of eighteen pence. <laughs> "'And that,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'would be equally objectionable.' On receipt of this assurance, Mr. Tigg shook him heartily by both hands, protesting with much earnestness that he was one of the most consistent and remarkable men he had ever met, and that he desired the honour of his better acquaintance. He moreover observed that there were many little characteristics about his friend Slime, of which he could by no means, as a man of strict honour, approve, but that he was prepared to forgive him all these slight drawbacks, and much more, in consideration of the great pleasure he himself had that day enjoyed in his social intercourse with Mr. Pecksniff, which had given him a far higher and more enduring delight than the successful negotiation of any small loan on the part of his friend could possibly have imparted. With which remarks he would beg leave, he said, to wish Mr. Pecksniff a very good evening, and so he took himself off, as little abashed by his recent failure as any gentleman would desire to be. End of chapter 4, part 1